Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on an overcast summer day in the mountains of Utah. As you all know, my new book, In the Shadow of Lightning, has now been out for two weeks. If you haven't picked it up yet, I hope that you'll do so. And if you've already finished, please consider leaving a review on Amazon, Goodreads, social media, or on your favorite online bookstore. My guest this week is epic fantasy author Bradley Bollier. Brad is known for The Lays of Anaskaya, The Song of the Shattered Sands, and his sci-fi debut, Absinthe, under the pseudonym of Brendan P. Bellicourt. Brad and I talk about his earlier career, how characters change and develop during the writing process, and picking proper nouns and book titles that resonate with the reader without pushing them away. We also talk about Brad's early career and his experience with smaller publishers, as well as his recent stroke and the recovery process. Enjoy my conversation with Bradley Bollier. So, Bradley, what have you been up to lately, man? It's been so long since I've gotten to see you. Yeah, I know. It's been a couple of years. We were, I think it was at Gen Con, right? The last time that we saw one another. I, I want to say Gen Con, yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, that's one of the last places that I've been to uh, like at all like writing wise well at all period not just writing wise i just have been holed up like a whole lot of people um here in wisconsin um so you know i mean we went through i think a, a fairly typical uh couple of pandemic years in which i you know luckily i i'm uh writing full-time so i can stay at home i don't need to go out anywhere um so those those habits developed early you know because we wanted to protect ourselves here in the house. But the kids, uh, they were away from uh, doing remote schooling. We have, we have two kids, a daughter and a son. Uh, so they were doing remote schooling for a while. And uh, Joanne was uh, doing teaching assistant um, for a local school here. And so she was off as well. So everybody was here in the house for a while. And that took some time uh, to get used to because for me, I, I like cherish the time when I can just be alone and be in the quiet and get my stuff done. I, I don't like interruptions. They happen and you deal with them. It's, you know, it's, it's just part of the, part of the deal, but like my, I get the most done and get the best words out when things are kind of, you know, quiet and I, and I can get maybe a couple hours in a session two two and a half hours is my typical session length. So I don't know, it was kind of, kind of intense for a while. It was just, it was just a, a change of pace and stuff. And you know, holding up for a long time. And then, and then those, those habits sort of stick, you know, cause we're, we're not really out of the pandemic. I mean, I guess we're shifting towards endemic phase at this point. Yeah. Uh, but you know, still you want to be careful. The, the different variants are out there and, and we're trying to be careful of our, our parents as well, you know, outer, uh, more distant family members and that sort of thing. So, so it's just been a lot of, you know, turtling up at home, staying inside the house, not, not, no, no travel to speak of. 
but I, I used to really like going up to, I'm, I'm about 30 minutes from Milwaukee. I'm about 15 minutes from Kenosha where there's some, some nice lakefront uh, cafes and stuff I like to go to. And so I haven't, um, haven't gone, you know, to either of those very much, uh, Kenosha a little bit cause it's closer. Uh, but Milwaukee, I just haven't been to in a couple of years too. And so it's weird. It's, you know, it's a different, different flavor just all around, you know, just personal and, and writing life both, you know, cause I haven't been to conventions either. I'm just finally going back to Gen Con this year, but I was going to a number of like, uh, European conventions, uh, one or two here in the U.S. per year. Um, I mean, there was a point where I was doing like five or six a year, and then for the you know for the past five years or whatever, zero, none. Uh, so it's 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 weird. It's very it's distancing, right? You you start to I don't know disconnect from not you know the 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 career, and by that I mean you know the people that you have friendships with. You don't feel like you're part of the business in a way because uh, you're not meeting with your editors and agents and publishers and uh, just being around it, you know, I'm, I I miss that stuff. But at the same time, I have now developed this healthy or not sense of fear of being out in public and stuff, um, yeah. you know, so so that's all there, too. So it's, you know, it's been a weird journey and it's and it's still kind of weird. And and yeah, so that's where things are. <laughs> well, and I'm I, I think I'm in pretty much the same exact situation as you, where it's just that all that kind of stuff just fell off and then it just gone. And now. I don't know. There's part of me that's trying to get back into the swing of things. I've got lots of stuff planned and, you know, like we went to France a month ago for two weeks uh, and we were very excited. It was the first trip for us in two and a half years. And, uh, and then we got COVID like it just, yeah, I saw that on Twitter and I was like, Oh man, like, what do you do with that kind of like, okay, we've been so strict. We're fully (laughs) vaccinated where we were super safe. We had masks on everywhere. We went in public Mm. and, uh, and then bam, we still got COVID and had to quarantine for six days in a French hotel room. What a drag. Yeah. That's uh, you, you were there for Les Imaginales. Was that where you were going? Yeah. And, and I ended up having to miss it. I, yeah, I saw that. Oh, it wasn't such a drag. It's such a fun convention. Right. It looked gorgeous. And I was yeah. like, I was going to take the long trade ride over there. I was going to be with um, Steven Erickson and Ian Esselmont. Oh, gosh. Like this, like this very cool opportunity. And it just cut cut out from under me on that one. And it was, it was very frustrating. I mean, beyond the being sick part, it was just. Yeah. Yeah. I um, not, not quite the same experience, but just just before the pandemic hit, I had been invited to a convention in the south of France. And I the name escapes me, but. Uh, it was it was a town where I, I knew somebody actually I, I went to who was speak at Oxford. I, I'm wearing an Oxford shirt. I'm showing Brian on this trip. I met someone who was running the Oxford sci- uh, science fiction and fantasy club, in essence, uh, that that invited me to talk. Um, and anyway, so to her hometown, she's French and she was studying in uh, in England. Um, so we were going to meet up there just to say hi and, you know, get, get like a, a tour from, you know, like a local that would have been awesome. I was so looking forward to it. Um, and then just, you know, getting invited over, um, I'm a big foodie. So I, I was just so looking forward to like experiencing more cuisine cause it's right uh, on the border between France and, and Spain. So it would just be different than what I had tried before. Uh, and then, you know, so we were actually, we we're starting to make loose plans. We had, we had sort of picked the dates that I would be flying and then, and then I wasn't hearing anything, but at the same time, the pandemic news was getting, you know, wider and wider and people were understanding the severity uh, and they, the convention itself finally made the call to to call it off completely. Uh, so you know, it totally understandable. You know why they would do it. I'm not. I'm not. 
uh, you know, angry about it or anything, but I, but I was like, oh man, it would have been so cool to, to go back. And that, that was my last opportunity, or I should say most recent opportunity to, to go over there. And so I just, I miss it. I really liked going over and stuff and just, uh, you know, doing part writing, part travel, part outreach, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah. I, I totally love that kind of thing that it's just, you know, I, I'm one of those kind of weird people that kind of, I, I like the, I like the weird aspects of travel that a lot of people don't like. I like the solitude of being by myself in an airport. Like there's something that's, I like just watching people walk past I like it being mm. in my own head, you know, that kind of thing. I like the solitude of doing like a long day where you're doing lots of publicity and stuff, but then you wind up back in your hotel room and you're, you're kind of lonely, but you're also kind of tired and you're kind of like, you're ready to crash and just like watch some stupid TV for an hour. Like that, like that moment after you've done all the work, and you finally get to be alone is like one of my favorite kind of periods of time. Yeah, I, I used to work in IT. Uh, I worked for IBM for a long time uh, in a, a smaller software company before that as a traveling consultant. And so I was a road warrior for a while, for a number of years. And I was, it was at times like 80, 90% travel. Um, and it was, I, I heard this, this thing that is absolutely true. Like the, I think it was like sort of a, an article on the, the, the stresses that come with travel. Um, and, and it wasn't quite what you thought the stress comes when you're going back home, not when you're leaving, Mm -hmm. because when you're leaving, you're actually leaving a bunch of responsibilities behind. Um, and you, you literally cannot work on them. Uh, you know, you have other stuff that you're going to be working on, of course, as a consultant. Uh, but by and large, I, I could do those things without a problem. The stresses came when I was like Friday morning or afternoon or whatever, on the way back to the airport, thinking about all the things I had to catch up on that I could not do during the week, you know? Yeah. So it, kind of in a similar way, like it, the, like just some of the, the regular stresses of life fall away from me when I go on any kind of travel uh, on the on the outbound, you know, destination uh, uh, flight or whatever. Because uh, you just, you know, you just have to let those things go and, you know, you can't work on them. So you're just kind of looking forward to the, the journey itself and then, you know, the fun that you'll have there or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird. Everybody, I think, reacts to that kind of thing a little bit differently. I have one friend who just just the whole concept of travel, just he does not get it. He doesn't like the <laughs> idea at all. I, I find that kind of funny. Um because I'm, I, I like seeing new new things and meeting new people and stuff like that. So does he do all staycations then? Uh, pretty much. Like I think he, I think that they went to Disney World this summer, um, okay. and and he, it was it was all panic inducing. He probably will listen to this episode, so he can <laughs> he can correct me. Yeah, right. But yeah, I I don't know. I I really I've always enjoyed travel. And I, I enjoy it more as an adult because when I was a kid, my parents used to do these long road trips across the country to visit relatives. And we didn't ever really do like Disney World. We didn't do like we didn't do like traditional vacations. We did. We're going to leave home with a van packed full of shit for two months and we're going to visit eight different relatives. And that was like the thing. And I didn't. It was always like, you know, packed in the car, vaguely car sick, trying to keep yourself entertained as a kid. Yeah. And I always kind of hated it because my dad would do this. I like I wanted to get and, you know, be where my cousins were and you know spend time with them. My dad would do this thing where he'd be like, hey, uh, there's this cool mountain road that I saw on the map. It's like a logging trail. Let's go down that for eight right. hours. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would be bored out of my skull, rocking in the back of the back of the car, back and forth. Oh God! And uh, but now as an adult, you know, I'm in charge of where I'm going and what I'm doing, and I I, I find that sort of like sense of freedom to that. Um, yeah. 
even when I'm traveling for work, I can be like, oh, well, I've I've got dinner tonight. Nobody has any expectations for me. I can go find someplace I want to be at. Um, mm. And I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I well, um, for me, travel, uh, you know, Beyonce, if it's a writing convention or whatever, just doing the writing thing. I, I just, I really do. I'm a foodie again. I, I love checking out places that are particular to that, you know, famous in the in the area, you know, for whatever. I, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's traditional. Um, I just care that it's like not overproductionized, you know, or, or some chain, you know, type thing. I just, I want to sort of experience the local cuisine, whether that's inherited from hundreds of years ago, or it's some modern infusion of some sort. Um, and I actually, a couple of times, I don't always get a chance to do this, but I do like hooking up with people to cook at their place in some faraway land, you know, cause then I get to like pick out ingredients and see what like sort of the shopping experience is like in another, you know, another place. So I did that in New York one time, uh, visited Mary Robinette Cole and cooked a meal for her and Rob and Joanne. And, um, and that was, just, I don't know, it was just fun. It was just fun going to a, a local, uh, uh, grocery store. Uh, it was, it was one of the famous, um, Zabars, I think it's called, uh, which is a, a pretty famous uh, like deli, uh, I think, uh, Jewish deli slash um, grocery store slash uh, kitchen equipment type place. Yeah. You know, so I just wandered there for a while and stuff, and it was it was just cool to walk around the city a little bit and and do that stuff. So yeah, I enjoy that too. Oh, that's very fun. See, I'd always. I, I don't consider myself a foodie. I love food. I love to eat. I love, I, I really quite enjoy cooking, but I don't consider myself a foodie because I don't, I never, I never want to go the extra mile to find the places and to find the <laughs> rare ingredients and things like that. But I've always wanted to like vacation or meet up with someone who is like that so that I can experience that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you do the, all the smoking and stuff and grow some stuff in your backyard and make jams and, and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. It's all very, um, it's all very accessible to, you know, like a middle-class white dude in Utah, right? Like it's not hard. It's not like very far out of my comfort zone. Well, it's good food. Matters. So, so yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd love that kind of thing. I mean, like when we were in France, like that was the highlight for me, you know, my wife was all, all about, you know, the going to the museums and seeing this incredible stuff. And I'm just, you know, give me the food. Yeah. Like I get to have a French baguette every single morning. Like that's so cool to me. Oh yeah. 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 Even the, some of the stuff that we get here that I like that is, you know, French in nature, um, just pales in comparison so much to what you can get there. The, one of my favorite things is uh pan au chocolat, the yeah. little croissant with the chocolate inside, right. Or chocolate. So good. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, the easiest place to get it here is at Starbucks. I get it occasionally. It, it used to before they they used to get their bakery goods from some company out of San Francisco. I think they eventually bought them and sort of productionized it. So it's worse than it used to be. They actually, they used to be okay, but anyway, trying some in France, I was just blown away. You know, you, again, going to you know decent bakeries over there are like very very good bakeries over here. So as long as you're at least discerning slightly, they're just really outstanding stuff. So it's yeah, it's fun to get those. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I something that I've I've uh, teased you about in the past that I absolutely love, um, light teasing, I want to say, is that your titles and your series names always are kind of a little complicated and strangely evocative. <laughs> and I, I really love that because they tend to be different yeah. than what you normally get 
for the very straightforward kind of epic fantasy titles. Yeah. Like, um, like I, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the, the Lays of Anaskaya. Anaskaya, yeah. Anaskaya. The Lays of Anaskaya. Um, let's see. Oh, I had a bunch saved. Oh, I'd close that window. Um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna read out a bunch of your titles and then I... Song of the Shattered Sands. Yeah. Beneath the Twisted Tea, Twisted Trees. That one I liked. Um, there's one that's... <laughs> Thunder, Thunder. Ends with the word made. Oh, uh, of sand and malice made. Right, exactly. Like, I love these kind of things that you're, you've got these titles that kind of twist a little bit, kind yeah. of in the way that you do the wordplay. And you tend to also use a lot of, uh, fantasy names in your titles. Yeah. And... I, I don't know. I like that. I'm I'm just kind of curious what what you what you do with titles in your own head. Yeah, that's I I uh, agonize over titles a lot. Um, I, I I I I suppose everybody does this. I, I don't know. Uh, as I'm working on the story, some very rarely they'll come to me quickly. I'll, I'll have a little document, a sub document. I use Scrivener, and I'll just start throwing up terms, you know, that I that I like, and then start putting actual titles together and I'll have probably a couple dozen minimum mm-hmm. um, before I sort of figure out, you know, what I want. Um, you know, I, and I've, I've, th- I've thought about this, this whole thing over the years and stuff. And I, I have, I, I fully cop to this. Like they, they have been, let's, let's say one more notch complex than say the typical fantasy title um, is. And, and I don't mind that. And I, and I like it. Uh, but also, I I wonder about uh, about that, and also just naming conventions in general. Like in the in the in the first series, the Lays of Anaskaya, I I think about accessibility a ton now, a lot more than I used to. Uh, and so it, it starts with the title, it starts with the names of the main characters, but it goes through to the the names of the places and the magic and and all that stuff. Um, and so in in the beginning, I was looking for something that felt different and true and deep and complex and rich, you know, and, and, and I think, I think I got that. I think I hit the mark, but at the same time, I think that distances the reader somewhat from the read. It becomes just a tiny bit more um, difficult to get into because some people can't pronounce the names. And so they're just, there's naturally like, I almost say pushed away, but they can't get close as close to the material as maybe they could. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's partly why, certain types of stories do better than other types of stories. It, assuming that the, the story and the writing are roughly equal, well, the stuff that we're used to, the names that we're used to, um, basically in epic fantasy, we're talking about like Western European medieval stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, um, I'm not saying that stories that fall outside of that don't succeed, they do, but sometimes it's 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 despite a bit of a headwind. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's because they they broke past that, that they, that they succeed wildly because it's just so something new and fresh and that's awesome. But it's also a truism that, that I think there's, you know, the readership is sort of used to a certain style of story. Uh, and, and, and the closer something aligns with it is as long as it's bringing something new, the more easy they can sort of, sort of digest it. Um, and so kind of swinging back to this whole notion of titles and naming and stuff, I've thought about this a lot. Like, I don't know, I don't know. You can't, you can't tell what effect that had on, on the readership and whether or not that did distance and, and prevent maybe a, a larger readership from, from, you know, adopting the series. Um, but so I, so I wrote the Lays of Honest Sky, which is probably my most complex in terms of this whole discussion. And then the Shattered Sands is kind of an Arabian night style fantasy. And so it's, it's probably actually one step closer, you know, to, to sort of the normal, let's call it, uh, what people are, are sort of used to in fantasy. 
Uh, and then now I've I actually shied away from quote unquote traditional fantasy for for years um, because I just I just didn't want to I didn't want to feel like I was treading the same ground um, as as things I've read. I, it, that didn't it didn't give me any juice to write stuff like that. And so I I kept putting it off, you know, until I, I'm like, well, you know, I'll do it someday when I find something that I really enjoy and can kind of latch onto. And so now that Shattered Sands is is done and out, the the six plus a prequel book are are done, a bunch of novellas. I'm writing something that is sort of sort of Western European based. It has dragons in it. It's it's a, it's a bit more traditional, and my naming is correspondingly like um, I can't say more mainstream, but like you'll be proud of me. The series title is called The Book of the Holt. Mm-hmm. So really simple, right? And the the titles, um, I, I think I'm going to have one that has like a name that's sort of in world. Uh, Ill Winds over Ancris is the name of the first book. Ancris is a, a city in the um, in this world, and so features heavily in the first book. Uh, and and some of the characters I have like Rylan and Lorelai and um, um, Skylar, Ash, Creed, things that are just more. They are more accessible. Um, uh, no, no two ways about it. So part of me is curious to see if that will have an effect. It's actually quite similar in complexity to Shattered Sands. Mm-hmm. The style that I'm telling it with multiple POVs is quite similar. Um, and, you know, I guess we'll just see how it is. You know, hopefully I've grown as a writer too. You know, we, we try to do better each each book. We learn as we go along. So I, I think that will will show as well, but I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes. But, I, you know, I'm always trying to find, I guess, something that is, yeah, a tiny bit enigmatic in terms of titles. You know, I want, I want, honestly, I want it to catch attention without being like, you know, sort of totally off-putting. I want, and, and I want it to be not, not just enigmatic. I want it to evoke something, you know, in, in the, in the potential reader's mind to make them go, huh, you know, I wonder what that's about. That's, that's my main, main goal with titles. See, I, I've always really liked that about your titles because I, I find that they are, um, I, I find that, that, that evocativeness, it, it, it almost lends like a brand to you as an author mm-hmm. because I see a title that's I'll see a title and I'll my head will go that's a very Brad Bullier kind of tattle, title like like I'll categorize something <laughs> as a you type thing right and I, I I kind of like that I think that's that's kind of neat to that's a, that's a neat approach um, to try to have that sort of that uniqueness to it I think I I will just say quickly that I I. I don't know that I did this consciously, but another person who does this extremely well, I think, is Guy Gabriel K. Uh, his his titles are just they're pretty they're pretty simple, but they're also they just capture something in in very short titles, like a song for our bone. Uh, it's, just, it's just great. I just love that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, I in fact, funny enough, I I did that with my new book. I tried to have something a little bit different, a little evocative, yeah. because um, for in the shadow of lightning. And, and honestly, I'm still surprised that my editor went for it because my <laughs> titles have all been very straightforward epic fantasy titles. And, uh, and like you were saying, I do have that same sort of slight nerves of does this put an extra layer of um, inaccessibility, even a very thin layer in front of the average reader? Um, and I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's always tricky. I mean, I, I like that one because, I mean, it obviously ties into the, the content, yeah. uh, but also in the shadow of right? The lighting. So you have like this light and dark thing going on immediately, just like right in the title. It's right there. Um, so that's, that's actually a pretty cool one, I think. Well, thank you. I, I'm, 
I really like it, and I'm glad that it's the title, but I'm still slightly surprised that it made it. <laughs> yeah, and, and did it, just curious, did that come quickly or not easily at all? No, not easily at all. It came, yeah, my process is very similar to yours in that I just start, I'll th- start doing word association. I'll start trying to f- play with themes and words from those themes and, and just kind of throw them on a page and combine them and recombine them and all that stuff. But yeah, no, that one took that one took months probably to get to get uh, finalized. Uh, hours and hours of just throwing words at a page and then and then staring at those words for the next few weeks as I continue writing, hoping that something new will come to me. Yeah, and then that one, I think that one didn't really hit me until I was almost finished with the final draft or what would become the final version of the book. And did, did you have a working title before that? Did you have a different title? Ooh, I probably did, but I don't remember. I, I I usually don't do working titles. I usually will do, it'll just be book one, book two, whatever. <laughs> sure. And uh, like right now for the sequel, it's just my Scrivener file name is just book two. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Back to me. Do you do you get much pushback from your editors uh, for your titles? The uh, the only pushback I've ever gotten on any of my titles so far um, has been when uh, we sold to Daw uh, Books here in the U.S. and then we eventually sold to Galance in the U.K. and um, Galance's theory at the time was, uh, and maybe still is, I, I, I don't know, they wanted simpler titles. And I think that was sort of a, a thing generally in the UK is just re- really short and punchy. So um, 12 Kings in Sharkai, the first book in the Shattered Sand series became 12 Kings, mm-hmm. so, you know, chopping off a couple of, of words. Um, and I, we did it, I think, with one other one. Uh, but the rest, you know, uh, yeah, I... I Again, I, I think I agonize over them enough, and I do try to make them short, but again, again a little bit enigmatic. Um, that uh, Anyway, Betsy Wolheim liked them all, and, and for the most part, Galantz did too. And, um, they, uh, they, they have changed a bit in translation, too. The French translation became, instead of the Song of the Shattered Sands, it's the Sharakai series. Yeah. Here, you know, so they just say, like, book one of Sharakai, not even the series, you know, so... So that changes slightly too, but um, but there's there's so much going on there with um, uh, so much to consider when you think about translation because just certain approaches just will not work because the language doesn't translate quite the way you mean it, mm-hmm. and so you, you just have to sort of take their instinct and go with it. Yeah, and that's it's an argument you're you're never going to win anyways. Sure, you know, like uh, foreign rights are one of those very weird things in our industry because, and I don't think people talk about it enough, how strange foreign rights are because you literally just have, you get an email from your agent saying this person wants to pay you money right. for a signature essentially. And so you do that 
And then you don't hear anything from these people for like six years. Yeah. And then suddenly maybe you'll get you'll get a royalty check for like eight dollars. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it actually came out. Like they never sent me a copy. They never they never asked for my opinions. They didn't do anything. They didn't tell me it was coming out. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it, that's that's been with a few exceptions, that's been predominantly my experience with foreign rights, and it's so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, similar similar here as well. Um, uh, France has been an exception because it's um, my books have done okay there, and I've just I, I got a chance to go over and meet them uh, several times, um, and so we you know developed a relationship, and so I was able to keep in touch more than I normally could with other publishers. Um, now, on the same thought as naming conventions, I thought this was really interest interesting. You. You tweeted something very recently that was um, that was about liking a name for a throwaway character so much that that character does not become a throwaway anymore. Yeah, and I thought that was funny because I actually I do the same thing, and I don't. I was curious how you do it because I if I if I'm throwing a name at the page for a character that is throwaway, and I uh, and I realize I really like the name once I see it there. Usually, it doesn't affect the character I'm using. Usually, I'll grab that name yeah. and I'll say, "Okay, I'm saving that. I'm going to use that for someone else." I, well, I have certainly done that too. There's times where I, I come, I find a name. I have a, I'm sure you do. A lot of people do it. A name bank. You know, I develop a bunch of names, and if I'm not using it, I'll throw it into this document, and maybe I'll use it in the future, kind of thing. Um, this time, this book series of books. Uh, I spent a lot of time. The Shark High series was a challenge for me because I had to, you know, talking about accessibility again, I had to thread that line, uh, the, the needle a little bit in terms of making it accessible and, and not too, uh, not too stereotypical, not too off, off putting meaning complex. Um, although I have some complex names for sure. Um, and so I was just constantly struggling with, you know, just how far to take that kind of thing. And so I would generally, um, uh, I came up with a bunch early on, but then as the story grew, I needed more and more characters. And so I would just go through some online resources, a document with some uh, Middle Eastern uh, names uh, in them and try to make my own, you know, based on those, that sort of thing. This time with the new series, I, I have, I found a larger document that has Latin, Hebrew, Greek, uh, Italian, uh, Irish, Name just a bunch of bunch of names. It, it, it has at least a thousand, probably several thousand in the in the document. And I literally scrolled through the entire thing, and it has like the meanings and where they, you know, the derivation, uh, where they came from. So I took a whole bunch and tried to. I have this like Roman style empire, uh, a story of the have and have not have nots in this new series, and so a bunch of the ruling party are Latin esque names. And a bunch of the down, downtrodden people are, are different style. They're like more Germanic uh, or um, Nordic, English, Anglo-Saxon in nature. Um, so I'm, try, I'm trying to sort of split their identity through their names uh, just, just to create a subconscious sort of feel um, to these two people uh, that I'm dealing with in the stories. So, um, so I, I have like a ton of names up front available to me. And so... Uh, as I was writing the tweet that came up where I found a name that I liked, the, the name is Maladox. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, I was, uh, I needed, I have these dragons. There was a dragon rider and I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving a spoiler, but people will forget this by the time the book actually comes out. This guy has to die. Um, he, yeah. he is going to be an example, um, of somebody else's cruelty. Um, and, and, and it's sort of a, 
it's it's a motivator in a way, but it's it's an eye awakening for the person who this example is meant for, the a daughter of a very cruel woman. And so um, so I was, you know, coming up with the names and stuff and came up with this Maladox, and I'm like, I like him too much. And and so I'm like, well, okay, so he could have a he could have a brother, couldn't he? Couldn't the brother die? Couldn't the brother die? And then the, the Maladox lives and I get to like see his pain. And then couldn't he be like, you know, the hound and uh, Arya uh, yeah. type of character, like who helps this young girl kind of make her way through this pretty cruel uh, world that she's sort of coming um, of age in. Um, and it all just started to click when I started adding a, you know, a second character. It didn't make a lot of sense emotionally to have like this guy there and gone. And, and, and then also correspondingly like to have this girl doesn't know him and so his death would mean nothing Uh, and so i I wanted to have a character live and to see have her see the pain of death you know through his eyes in a way Mm -hmm. i mean she would be of course angry and upset with her mother for being this callous and cruel but it will have so much more impact if she can feel this man's pain and maybe help him through it he's this very hardened warrior and he breaks down because his brother's now gone they were twins um, and there's this whole bonding thing with uh, the the dragons that they that they control, and and he also lost a dragon just before this, and so he, he's lost his bondmate, he's lost his brother, and so this girl is going to help him heal, and so it'll help her grow, it'll help him change, and so just that that weird little thing about wanting to keep a character, you know, it's it's important always to try to find like I don't know reasons for characters um, to exist, reasons uh, to have them connect to other characters, because it just deepens all of them. Um, you know, the, I'm only talking about three characters and already, and, and the fourth one who dies, but um, it already just by, by one of them living deepens the relationships uh, for those three survivors greatly, much more so than if, if like one person had died that we didn't know. And this girl is sort of lamenting uh, a cipher, essentially. She doesn't know him close enough to to have it affect her greatly. And so, yeah, that was an interesting thing, um, you know, and it sort of touches on, you know, how we approach characters, how we approach relationships, how we how we approach sympathy uh, in the reader for these people. Mm -hmm. How do we evoke that? Um, and it, you know, and it's it's through their emotions, and those emotions come from decisions and actions uh, that they take and other people take. And so it was just a, it was it was a cool thing that showed up in a place where I was feeling like this, not the story as a whole, but that chapter felt pretty dead to me at the time. So it was actually pretty fortuitous that that I want to keep this character came about. Well, and it's also a good example of how when you're kind of developing creatively, a single thought will spiral out of control into becoming an entire subplot of your book. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. I, I didn't know if this was going to come up in the, in the, uh, in the talk, but like, as I'm working on this, I, I started, <laughs> I started this new series with the same idea as the shattered sands. I was going to write it with two POV characters, period. Mm-hmm. And, and one is from this dark forest with these downtrodden people one is an inquisitor he's a thief one is an inquisitor from the capital city of Ancris who is hunting him essentially and so they get wrapped up in this larger plot that's much bigger than than them and enemies people who start as enemies become friends and so i um first of all it it blew up a lot and partly because i had a lot a lot of threads going on and i I couldn't tell the tale only through their eyes I i just had to show a bit more from other people's points of view um, but also I started in, in the wrong place, I think. I still haven't gone through. I'm still not done with the first draft. But 
I thought it was going to be a, a, a uh, I don't know, a, a big twist ending type story. And it just t- did not, it didn't work for me at all. It's um, the story opens with these dual class uh, cleric wizards on this mountaintop that explodes. Um, and we come to find out that that was years in the planning. They did it on purpose. Um, and with the, the name, Ilwins over Anchorage, we get the feeling immediately that Anchorage is now in danger. And so a lot of the story became, instead of having some big surprise at the end, it became, why? We, you know, we sort of know what, we know the threat anyway. We don't know if they're going to succeed, uh, but we know the threat. But we don't know why. We don't know why they're doing it. And so that's the tease that I put in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And just over and over again, there were so many things that were like, like you say, just um, little ideas that, that came to mind. And how can I, um, how can I leverage that? Or, or not even how can I leverage it? Like it, it almost demands to be explained. You know, it, 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 it has to have like a good sort of grounding in, in the story itself and help support um, the story as a whole. Um, so like one example I was just writing today before I got on here, um, there, there are these notions of um, these uh, henge, uh, stone henge type places. There's standing stones, henges all over the forest. And come to find out, the, the ancients knew how to travel from place to place via these, these henges. Um, and when you go into them, you're in this sort of endor type forest, with these gigantic trees, um, and they are. I, I kind of model this off of the um, the colony trees out in. I don't remember if it's Utah or, or Colorado, but there's like a, a colony of like fifty thousand trees that are supposed to be like one. Uh, oh, are you talking about the? Is it the aspen? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I live like right next to it. It's like right on this mountain behind me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought I was closish to to your area. Yeah. And so the, these these trees are sort of sort of one being in a way and and they they both support this travel um and and are are kind of used by the the ferrymen who who go from place to place and the main character Lorelai she's kind of a shy person even though she's an inquisitor she she's she's like uh, a a fierce searcher for the truth which sort of led her to this among other things to her um uh her profession um and and she she sort of hates being out of control and she's traveled by these veered, they're called Virda, um, and she's sensed the forest around her, and it just, like, freaks her out. Um, and so that just, it became a thing, like, you know, what is the forest? What is its nature? How does Lorelei uh, relate to it? How does anybody relate to it? How do they use it? And, and how is she different, you know? And, and so that's that's just an example of how things can sort of spin, you know, like crazy. And part of it is is, is really fun. That's that's like one of the funnest parts of this job, frankly. But but like another thing that we must do is like wrangle yeah. it, you know? You can't let it get out of control. Otherwise, you have a bunch of competing ideas in a story that just don't feel cohesive anymore. I thought it was interesting what you said about sometimes realizing that you're starting in a story in the wrong spot. Mm. And I uh, I did that with the new book. I did that with Promise of Blood as well, my very first book. Okay. Um, but in the new book, I had, I originally, I had kind of, I conceived of this idea that magic is an industrial resource and it's running out. And my original thought was that the running out bit was would work way better as the twist ending of the seer mm. of the book okay. of the first book. Okay. And, uh, and I, I played with that for at least a year trying to make that work. And then the moment I said, okay, screw that. I'm going to bring it all the way to the beginning. And so it's literally like on the back cover copy of the book. It's not a spoiler. It's not a, it's not secret or anything. Oh, okay. So you're starting with that. And so I, I swung it around and started with it okay. and it, 
it made the whole thing work perfectly. Yeah, I um I attended a, a writing workshop um, years ago, and the instructor was we were critiquing a story, and I I, I forget the details of the story itself, but it was it was telegraphing uh, a lot mm-hmm. about what the story was going to be, and and some of the, some of the uh, uh, students, me included, was like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't you know telegraph that so much, but the instructor was like, no, um, you know, this it tells the reader what kind of story this is. If if you didn't do that and then sort of surprise them at the very end, uh, they would feel cheated, you know, and and sort of robbed uh, of the experience. It wouldn't it wouldn't feel right to them. You know, in my case, I, um, I, I, I started at a point where this mystery of what's going to happen to the city of Ancrus was was totally shrouded. Uh, and, and my thought was, well, the characters will find clues along the way and I'll, I'll, I'll show more and more. And they'll, they'll, you know, they'll fear for the safety of the city. But the, the, tr- the trouble was um, it, just, it just didn't feel imminent enough because nobody knew it was happening. You know, so I either had to introduce, you know, sort of like a natural disaster type of element to it where things were slowly getting more and more haywire uh, or just completely telegraph it up front. Um, and then, again, use that as a way to pose different questions. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we sort of know the main players right in that first chapter but again we don't know their motivations you know or why they're doing this what is what is their real goal and that's that's the mystery that's going to be explained um along with you know the characters finding this stuff out but you know the reader knows and so it's been a challenge for me because i've i haven't done quite you know i've done this in two small degrees with like subplots and stuff uh but not as sort of the main through line of the story and so it's been a challenge to sort of balance you know some some of the tension is gone you, you can't leverage it because the reader knows what's going on. And so you must focus on those other things. Um, and, you know, so hopefully you can do a little bit of both. I mean, the characters do have to react and feel um, pressure about this threat that they now know exists, you know, as they start to learn more and more. Uh, but then but then they have to start to ask, you know, why, you know, and start digging at the real mystery. And and so that that stuff will eventually spill into, a, you know, the, the greater threat that exists and, and, and will be shown in books, you know, two and three and four sort, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, all of that is is kind of the balance you walk as an author, especially with these big epic fantasy books, is that you are you're you tend to be kind of walking that tightrope of of accessibility as we talked about, but also, but also, you know, you want it to be a deep world. You want it to have secrets. You want it to have secrets that, that don't necessarily feel like surprises. So that when the secret comes out, the reader goes, Oh, that makes totally sense. (laughs) You know, like, and you're trying to balance all of these things. And it honestly, sometimes it can be incredibly tough to do. Yeah. That's yeah. It's a super, I mean, and it's a, it's a balance that you're, constantly working at it. I mean, it's for me, and I, I think this is true of, of any writer in any book, it's every scene. It's every single scene that you're balancing those things. You're sort of posing a question of, will this character, you know, do this thing? Will they will they answer the question? Will they defeat the their nemesis? Will they get the gal or the guy? Uh, you know, whatever. We have to understand what's, what's coming. And what, one of my favorite things about... Um, that I've learned about writing uh, that was not clear to me in the beginning was this notion of 
as as we were um, you know coming up through school, we are trained and it becomes ingrained in us to explain things. We have a topic uh, that we've been assigned for some report, whether it's a book report or a science you know uh, project or whatever. And we were told to explain things in a very logical, stepwise fashion. And narrative fiction is almost the exact opposite. Um, it is it is the posing of questions and the withholding of answers um, and answering them in such a way that new questions are posed. So if you if you show somebody sneaking into a bank to steal some money, uh, okay, maybe they get the money and maybe they don't, but then where do they bring it afterwards? Um, maybe maybe they hand it off to somebody and, and it gets whisked away in, in a van or something. You know, okay, okay, now it's bigger than just stealing some money. It's it's for a purpose. What is that purpose? You know, so now we go on, on that trail. So it's it's just this constant, constant posing of questions, answering them and doing it in such a way narratively, dramatically, so that new questions arise in the reader's mind. And then you go on to the next scene, you know, and answer that question and pose new ones. Yeah. No, it's a continuous cycle until you reach that climax and ending. And uh, and then sometimes you keep writing more books after that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not the end there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I was curious about something that... Uh, it's one of those, it's a little bit more of a businessy thing. And if, if it's, uh, if it's uncomfortable, we can cut this, but I was curious a little bit about the, the nightshade book debacle mm-hmm. from what I remember, this was your publisher for your first series. And from what I remember, they, they kind of collapsed and, and took a bunch of authors and works with them. And I think that you got a hold of your rights, right? Yeah, so I I got uh, I sold my first trilogy of books through my agent Russ Galen uh, as sort of a a follow on effect, the Paolo Bacigalupi effect. He had come out with a wind up girl um, through uh, Nightshade Books, and it did phenomenally well. Uh, and so they were looking to invest and grow as a young company, which is what you would do. And they, they certainly had other successes successes as well, uh, but that was their first just runaway hit. Uh, and so it allowed them to, to, you know, sort of branch out and, and, uh, uh, and so, so they had this, I think it was 2012, 11, I forget 11 or 12. 
um, where they had like a new voices program, they called it, where a whole bunch, uh, Cameron Hurley was another one, um, uh, and I was in this as well. So the first Lays of Anaskaya book came out at that point. Um, and long story short, they they over-invested. They, they gambled too much on new authors. Their, their hope was by, by bringing in, I don't know, 25 plus new authors with new books, they would find another wind-up girl. Um, sadly, they didn't, you know, they, again, they had some successes along the way, but you know, just nothing of that uh, magnitude. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it costs a lot to, to keep a publishing house going, even a, a, a smallish, medium-sized one like Nightshade. Uh, and so they were starting to have money troubles. Um, and by the time we hit the third book, they were, they were at the point where they were not paying some advances. Um, and they... They, they had some sort of online rouse, the, well, rouse that, that sort of became public. Um, and so people kind of knew what was going on by that point. They, they were not dissolved yet. They hadn't sold yet. Um, and so we, uh, we, we approached them, me and my agent, asking, you know, if we agree to drop the advance for the last book, will you put more towards marketing? And <laughs> essentially the answer came back, yeah. Okay. We'll 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 lower the advance and we'll do our regular marketing, which was basically nothing at that point. They just didn't have the 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 bandwidth to do it, the money to do it. And and um, there there were some somewhat famous um, confrontations that came up with Nightshade trying to keep certain rights, even though they weren't paying the right amount of money to the authors per the contracts. And by the time it got to me and and that last book, um, I think the the wind was out of their sails a little bit, and they kind of saw the writing on the wall. And so they basically said, if Brad doesn't like the deal, not in an angry way, if he doesn't like it, he can have his books back. Yeah. And so I said, I'll take my books back. Yeah. Um, and and so Russ, Russ, my agent, was like, well, what are you going to do with them? I mean, you know, for him, um, Kickstarter. He knew about Kickstarters, of course, but. But his, you know, his main thing is getting books into traditional publishers, getting them on shelves. Um, and and I, by then I had done a couple of Kickstarters or I may know it was I think it was just one for like a short story collection. And I was involved in some other ones. And and so I'm like, I'll, I'll kickstart it. I'll, I'll do it myself and stuff. And so and that's that's what we did eventually. Uh, we said, yes, we'll take the rights back. They did give them back without I mean, there was no fight. They, they had already offered it. So we just accepted. Yeah. We finally got the letter of um, reversion. Uh, I ran the Kickstarters. And, and so. At that point, I I owned the rights, um, and uh, in the meantime, Nightshade was trying to sell, but they were not an entity. They were not a legal entity at the time. Um, it was a, a partnership, not an LLC, not a corporation, um, between Jeremy Lassen and forgetting forgetting the other fellow's name. Um, the two guys who ran Nightshade. And so they, they, they couldn't sell it as a whole. All they could do was was sort of transfer the, the contract to somebody else and get some money for it. Um, yeah. And so that's when everything got really interesting because, um, because well, uh, one more twist. The people that eventually um, uh, bought them were Skyhorse Publishing. Skyhorse and Start, I think, were sort of a two labels under the same umbrella. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so they wanted to buy it, but the, the, the rights were, were maybe a little bit too generous, um, you know, during that era, uh, just before they got in and before things went south. And so they wanted to renegotiate. And so there was a whole bunch of people who were stuck with contracts that Nightshade, I'm uh, sorry, Skyhorse wanted to renegotiate that they may or may not have wanted to. 
Um, and, and a lot of them didn't because they already had a contract. So why should I renegotiate? Yeah. Uh, but then the threat was, well, if you, if you don't agree, if not, if not enough authors agree to this, we are going to walk away from this deal and you can deal with Nightshade as they are, which was a horrible option as well. You know, so rock on a hard place for, for a bunch of the authors. And I, I escaped this by like a month. Wow. Yeah. You dodged that bullet like real close. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and oddly enough, the my agent, uh, again, Russ Galen, he, he knew the people from Skyhorse, and he eventually sold print-only rights to Skyhorse. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was sort of back with them, but I kept, audio was already, uh, was already sold, but I kept e-rights. Yeah. Uh, and so I had already done the Kickstarters by then, and so they, you know, I, was, I was sort of selling them already. So just having a publisher do print rights was, felt like the right choice at the time. I don't know if I'd do that deal again, knowing what I know now, um, because they, they, it just, you know, the, the series was nearing the, the long, not, not nearing, it was in the long tail already. Um, and so just uh, at the time, like Amazon didn't have good options um, for printing physical copies. There weren't a lot of great options outside of like printing them yourself and being a warehouse. Um, and so, you know, then I was like, ah, I just, I don't want to deal with that stuff. It's, it's just, it's just too, it takes too much time per unit to try to deal with all the, the orders and getting them out. I don't mind doing it on a book release for, you know, a bunch of orders that come in at one time and get them out, but like just on a constant basis, it would be a pain. So, yeah. um, so, you know, I, I guess at the time it was the right decision. Um, but somewhat soon thereafter, Amazon started offering the, the, uh, physical sales, uh, print on demand. Um, so that would have been an easier choice in the end. I think than and more lucrative than going that way. So that series, um, did that? Were you pretty much ready to be done with that series at that point? Were you really only planned for three books, or did or, or did it kill momentum that might have made more? No, I was I was ready for yeah. that. Sorry, my phone is like it's Siriing me. It must have heard something that sounded like Siri or something. Hey Siri, it's gonna go again. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I should start doing that, right? Just drop Hey Siri right in the center of every interview. See if anybody's going to run. Where was it? Yeah, so The Lays of Adeskaya. Um, You know, I, I had, uh, by then, sort of towards the tail end of the series, I had written a short story for an anthology called The Spices of Sandira. And it was a, it was a story about um, these, uh, a, a pair of guys who traveled on these ships that sailed the sand. Um, and I, I just... I had always wanted to write something in, you know, desert-based fantasy. I had been doing that a little bit in the the end of the Lays of Honor Sky series. A good part of book three was set in a desert. I just really liked it. I liked the milieu. And so uh, I wrote that that, uh, novella. And then that became the brainchild for um, for Sharakai. Uh, Sanandira became Sharakai. I reimagined a whole bunch of stuff. um, And that became the new series. And so by then, it I mean, it was partly like I felt like I had told that story and, and it, I didn't have a lot of juice to write anything more about the Condor and um, Atiana and, and company. And and I really was kind of like, you know, a lot of I think what we do, we, we business stuff comes into play in this decision making, of course. But it's also like your drive to write a particular story. You know, how much juice do you get from it? And that really shows up on the page if you can find something, you know, that that does that. And by then I was sort of looking towards that. And I'm like, you know, I, I really want to write, you know, a, a larger, uh, at least a trilogy. It was a trilogy in the beginning, but it, it blew up um, and became the, the Shattered Sand series. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, no nothing lost there. I was I was ready to move on anyway. Yeah. Cool. Um, what, so 
I uh, I was hoping, if you don't mind, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your health. Because last, I believe it was November, you had a stroke. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, not, knock on wood, uh, very good. Um, so it, it, it turned out to be um, an arterial dissection, a dissection, and it was in my carotid, uh, my right carotid going up. Um, it was the part where it passes through the cranium into the, the brain cavity. Um, and so a, a dissection is uh, your, your arteries, your veins have like kind of, t- I think actually like three layers and, and the two outermost ones can, um, can rupture in some way. And it's, it can happen from um, physical trauma, um, getting hit in the head, um, sports injury, falling down, what have you. Uh, it can also happen spontaneously. And I, I had uh, and have uh, high blood pressure mm-hmm. and like an idiot uh, during the pandemic, I didn't renew it was a fairly low dosage that I was taking for high blood pressure medication. I was not taking it. Um, so warning one to everybody out there, you know, please listen to your doctors. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty sure that what happened was the, the dissection was partially caused by uh, high blood pressure. Yeah. And so, so what happens is there's a small tear that forms. And because there's a lot of blood rushing through there, it, it sort of seeps under that first layer and it can balloon essentially. It creates this like little bubble inside of your vein and cuts off blood flow. Um, l- luckily, our our physiology is such that we have we have two carotids. And if one is blocked, even 100%, you, you can still get flow through the other. Uh, but with dissections can come blood clots. And that's what happened. Um, that, that dissection eventually threw off a clot. Um, it got lodged up, up in the top part of my head somewhere. Um, and I, I had, I had, it was, it was a little bit weird because I had laid down for a nap. And when I, when I woke up, it, it probably happened while I was sleeping, I suppose. Uh, but when I woke up, I was, I was just sort of out of my head. Um, I, I didn't really know what I was trying to do. I, I vaguely knew that I wanted to come back here into this, you know, my office and, and get some writing done. Uh, I was napping cause I had a headache when I dropped off my daughter uh, at school and, um, so I came into into the office. I sat down, and and then you know by then I was like things are a little bit weird. I just I could not think straight. I couldn't put sort of two thoughts together properly. Um, um, and I remember like sitting down at my keyboard and doing like an alt tab type thing, or like, I wanted to do an alt tab because I was on one page. I wanted to flip to another you know window, and I could not get my hand to work. My my left hand was affected pretty greatly. Oh, that's terrifying. Um, and I, yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's hard to remember exactly how it, it felt and stuff, but I like I could I could sort of move my hand onto the keyboard, but my fingers were pretty non-responsive, um, and, and so I I just could not get it to work. I couldn't find my phone, and this this was kind of weird too. I understand it now, but at the time I didn't realize that my my phone was in my left pocket, and I I had reached into there into that pocket several times trying to find it, and I and I couldn't. And took my took my hand out. I I kind of got up and looked around a bunch of times, and then I um I th- I can't remember if I I think I called it via like a voice over IP thing or something, and I heard it ringing. And again, I'm so out of my head, I can't quite piece together where it is. I'm looking on the on the floor next to me, looking at looking at my desk. I can't find it. And then finally, I like I like sort of look down and pull my pocket open 
and I can see it. There's the phone. And and it, it was the, it was just a an extra symptom um, of not being able to use the hand properly slash yeah. feel it properly. I was I wasn't getting the right feedback. So even though my hand was touching the phone inside of the pocket as I was reaching in, it totally didn't register like I was touching a phone. Oh man. It was it was pretty weird. And and so um I, I will divulge here. I, I said it on Twitter at the time too, because I did like this thread once I got to the hospital. Um, but I, at the time, not anymore, but I had, I had a voice over IP line um, and the, the connection was such that I did not have 911. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to call 911, but I couldn't, I tried mm-hmm. and it just wouldn't go through. And then um, uh, my, my wife um, usually has her phone on, didn't at the time. Um, so it went to voicemail. I called her school and it went to, it also went to voice me because the, the head operator was just away from the desk at the time. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) And so, you know, like, that's like panic inducing. Yeah. I mean, sort of, but again, I was so really out of my head. I was not just not thinking clearly. I was, I was, I was together enough that I, I brought up a webpage and did look up signs of stroke, you know, Mm -hmm. to to try to see, because I kind you know, I knew the signs and I, I was starting to, I looked in the mirror in the bathroom and it wasn't supermarket, but I could, I could see a drooping on the left side of my face a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, so then I was thinking, well, should I, should I go to run to a neighbor, which was the right choice. I should have gone to a neighbor and, and tried to get somebody. Uh, but I drove, I drove to the hospital, um, which was dumb looking back. Cause I didn't know what would have happened uh, on the way there. Right. I did, you know, I, I knew enough by then it was about 15, 10, 15 minutes in 10, 12 minutes in. And I knew I had good control of my right hand. Um, I knew my left side was affected, you know, more. And even then I could move my left hand a, a bit. And so, you know, I got there and um, they, you, t- you tell them, you know, certain things, stroke and tingling in my left hand among them. And they will rush you into the, you know, to the emergency room, which they did. Yeah, uh, I, I received good care and um, uh, they identified the, the, the site of the stroke itself. They identified the dissection in the carotid. And uh, so I'm really fortunate. I mean, I'm, I'm 99% back. I still have some oddness in my left hand. I mean, I can, I can use it fully, uh, but I, it doesn't, it doesn't work quite as quickly as it used to. Um, some of the feeling in my, my lips and cheek here, uh, my left cheek um, is, is a, a little numb. I can feel it, but just not like it used to be. Uh, and so I, you know, I escaped this uh, incident uh, with with relatively, you know, very few problems. Uh, there were there was a couple of days where, when when you have a stroke, depending on what symptoms you have, the the symptoms that you're experiencing will uh, will heighten and lesson depending on the day and depending on how exhausted you are, how exhausted your mind is, how much, uh, you know, how how your body is physically, um, uh, that sort of thing. And so there was, there was points where I I could barely use my arm. I was like, my hand was sort of like flopping weird. I I, I could not get my, my fingers to touch at certain points. And when, when I could get them to touch, it was was so odd. Like I had to like, look at my fingers and like sort of squint at them. And even then it was like trying super hard to get them to to go and meet and then they they wouldn't and then finally they would and i'm like oh okay that's something um oh, that's so strange it, uh, <laughs> it was it was really freaky and I, the, the reason i mean i can you know i can laugh about it now and, and even you know and even at the time i was like oh well I, I knew it was serious of course but like even then i was like it it could have been a lot worse and i and i was aware that it that it could recur it, it could get worse in the hospital you know that kind of thing but i was just like 
you just have to go and trust them and, and do what they tell you to do, uh, that sort of thing. And, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, after the first, the first like five days were, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty weird and concerning. I, 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 I went through this, this phase, uh, thankfully short lived where I was like, I need to get like a voice dictation program because I'm not going to be able to type properly anymore. My output's going to go way, way down. And so I, I invest, uh, uh, researched again, you know, if, if you fall out of that for a couple of years, there's a whole bunch of new players on the market. So I researched, you know, who's, you know, Dragon actually speaking, uh, uh, Apple themselves have a built-in voice translator that's decent. And um, so I played with that for a while. And, um, but it, over time, you know, luckily the, um, I did go back for, after three months, they, they give you um, I suppose, depending on the injury, but the dissection generally is going to, going to heal if, to a fair degree. Uh, and so I went for a, um, uh, b- 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 angiogram, uh, where they put the scope in through my groin area and they, they actually went in with a little microscope, essentially, uh, it goes, it goes through the heart and then up through the carotid. It's just, it's just amazing that they can just route it wherever they want to. Oh, that freaks me out so much. That idea. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was weird. Gives me the heebie-jeebies. And um, so when you go for that type of angiogram, you must be awake because you have to help them. And so they give you um, drugs that are similar to colonoscopy. And I've had colonoscopies, and they are they are such that um, when they give them to you, you have about ten seconds. And at the end of those ten seconds, you are on the other side. You are waking up. Yeah. Um, in this case, they they have they have to have your input. They have to have your help. And so they didn't give me as much as they normally would. And so I was conscious. I was talking to them. And they, they so they gave me stuff that w- that made my uh, made me heat up like crazy. My my head and face and neck and stuff. And um, it was a weird experience for sure. Oh, oh my god. And and you're and you're you're also on top of all this stuff. You are strapped. To that to that bed and your yeah. your head especially because they're trying to take pictures uh, of inside of your head and so they can't have you moving around and so if you are if if you have any amount of claustrophobia luckily I I don't have tiny degree but but not much um, you know you feel pretty helpless yeah. you know at, at that point um, and those those drugs also help calm those fears you know at the same time so they did the angiogram they found that the the term that they used was uh, the dissection had resolved meaning it had healed essentially yeah uh, on its own and they wrote it off um, as a it can be a spontaneous dissection they call it and so um, in, in other words, not caused from trauma of some kind. Uh, and so he said the, um, the heart specialist or actually vein specialist, um, said that, uh, he doesn't expect it to occur again. The, the, the lining inside of my veins was not such that he felt I was at risk for a, a recurrence. And so, so hopefully this is a one-time thing that never happens again, but, um, yeah, that's where it stands. Yeah. Hopefully. Man, that is wild. I'm I'm so glad to hear that you are you are mostly back to normal because that's that's scary yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know I, I I don't think about it too much anymore. But again, like um, the 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 doctor that attended me in the hospital was like you're you know you're a very lucky man. When I went to my GP, he was like, I expected you after having seen my scans. He said I expected you to be wheeled in in a wheelchair you know, not sitting up and, you know, talking to me and stuff. And so, um, I, yeah, it was, it was a close call and I'm, you know, I'm relative and always have been relatively healthy exercise. And so I'm not too worried about that, but the, I did have high blood pressure still do. So, you know, I have to be careful of that. And, you know, we, we, I think as writers, some, sometimes ignore 
the absolute fact that our bodies directly affect our ability to work and be creative. You know, if, if, if you are debilitated in some way, if you're not taking care of yourself, um, it, it will it will not only lower your output, it will lower the quality of your work, too. You know, yeah. so it's just super important to to stay on top of that stuff, treat yourself and, and not just physically. You know, I, I have to touch on mental health as well. You know, we push ourselves in a lot of different directions um, in terms of expectations and what we're supposed to be doing, how well our books are doing once they're out. And man, you gotta you gotta learn to give yourself a break too, because that that stuff can really can really choke your your willingness to write. Uh, can make you start to to write safe uh, or or write in such a way that you are not invested really. You know, in the in the story and the characters. And that's, that's one thing that I feel really fortunate about. Like I do get stressed out about my career and I do look at, you know, other people's successes and, and wish I was there, you know, and I wonder why I'm not there, you know, that kind of thing. But, but luckily enough, for whatever reason, when I'm in the story, my, my favorite thing about writing still is when I can fall into the story. It's just awesome. It's awesome. It's, I love the storytelling aspect of it, you know, being making new worlds and new characters and new situations and being able to sort of, you know, play that out and wring out emotions and, and make other people feel the same way. It's such a, a cool thing, you know, that we get to do. Like, um, I just did a spoiler interview uh, last week in which two French readers had, had read the series in French, but then they finished in uh, English because they're both English readers, they're bilingual, and um, the books weren't all out in French yet. And anyway, it's the first interview of that type I've done ever where I've gotten to talk about um, anything beyond book one or really anything beyond, say, back cover copy of book one. Yeah, uh, because we don't want to give away too many spoilers, you know. Um, and so it was just fun to like let loose and just kind of like fan it up, you know, about about the story that I love, you know, essentially. And so we we touched on this topic of like, you know, they were like, you know, thank you very much for creating this world. Uh, you know, it, it feels like home, you know, the one of them said. And and I'm like, you know, thank you, too, because, the, you know, this, this is one of the coolest things about writing in general is just this notion of like us writers bringing half of the story and you, the reader, bringing the other half of the story. And, it, and they meet in the middle somehow. And it, it's such a cool aspect of it. Yeah. No, that is that is very cool. And honestly, that sounds quite quite like a fun thing to do i've never done something like that where i where i just kind of am able to talk about very specific things from the books yeah rather than you know kind of the generalizations that you always float around with with these kind of things yeah and and even if you know even if you go to like say a convention and you end up talking to somebody that, that likes your work and stuff very very often it, it goes no further than like i liked your books and yeah. you know maybe i liked this aspect of it uh may, maybe a question about a character or something like that but but hardly ever and i you know i think it just goes to like i think readers feel like they don't want to like monopolize your time they don't want to um overextend their welcome kind of thing even even though we like i i would really love to talk about that stuff you know yeah. so this was like not just from the point of interviews, I have never done this with really anybody, you know, except for maybe like a beta reader here and there, you know, because then we can, because we're talking about like how to make a book six better. And you, you, you must now talk about say the, the books that came before and that book too. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so that, you know, that, that does happen sometimes, but like not in any other context. And so it was, it was just super duper cool to, to be able to just geek out uh, for once and just, you know, just not worry about, 
my own insecurities about the books and and just talk about you know you know i i invested a decade of my life on these characters you know and so it was fun to just kind of talk about them a little bit you know and and what they what they went through uh, both as the person who brought them into being but also them as as people you know what i mean um yeah. and the story itself too so yeah it was pretty cool oh that's that's awesome very cool well speaking of monopolizing time i've uh, taken <laughs> quite a bit of yours so far so um, I like to finish each of these episodes up by asking you a very simple left field question. What's the last thing that you ate that just totally blew your mind? Yeah, lucky I, I listened to, um, well, the Veronica Belmont one, but then the, the Scott Lynch one in, in full. And so I knew this was coming. And I have, <laughs> I have, two, I have two answers. So one, one is an ingredient, um, mm-hmm. and that is the simple tomato. Uh, we have a, uh, a local gardening center here, and the owner uh, is a huge like tomato fan. Um, uh, and he has a garden center. So he, you know, he sells all kinds of different plants and stuff, but they have a tomato fest. And so they have, uh, it must be, well, at least a hundred, may- maybe 150, maybe 200 varieties, different varieties of tomato. And so then they grow them and sell them in spring. And so like each year, not every single year, but like for the past like six, seven years, I'll, I'll go by and get, you know, a couple different varieties and grow them. So I have, mm-hmm. This year, six out back, six different tomato plants. And it is amazing to me how different homegrown tomatoes especially taste from from uh, grocery store tomatoes because they they pick them early. They um, they are hard. They are tasteless. They uh, they use varieties that are tailored to being firm and to be able to handle shipping well. Yeah. Transportable. And. And no, well, I, I, I think taste is, is absolutely a second or, or, or third uh, consideration, but I, I think it actually is um, in, in the growing of them, it's, it's like antithetical to, to, the, to them being like firmer, right? The firmer they get, the, the less they can taste. Uh, yeah. I think they're actually working on that. But anyway, so that, that's, I, I love doing that, the, especially there's some that are um, the cherry tomatoes. Uh, they're, just, they're super flavorful, really sweet, really bright uh, those those are awesome. And then in terms of um, I love cooking, um, and I have never tried my. I often say my favorite meal to make um, is the one I haven't tried before. And recently, my sister had a, an exchange student from Spain, um, and so and she's had several over the past bunch of years. And so each each time they have one, I try to make a meal from that person's home country just to make them feel a little bit more welcome. And so I had never made paella, mm-hmm. uh, and so I got a special bombo rice from a certain area of Spain that works incredibly well with paella because it uh, it expands but doesn't burst. And so it, it, it stays like tender um, instead of sort of crumbling at a certain point because it's a long cook for the paella. And uh, so anyway, I made that and she she said it turned out like her grandmother's, reminded her of her grandmother's. So that was a really huge compliment. And I, I didn't quite nail it. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a special like crust that forms if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this like sort of crunchy golden goodness at the bottom of the rice w- along with the more like tender rice on top of it. So I'm, I'm still working on that part, but the actual flavors are just outstanding. So I, I love that base recipe. And I'm just, that's, that's a canvas meal. You can like, you can throw chicken, sausage, shrimp, seafood, you can throw anything into it. So that I'm really happy. I finally tackled that recipe um yeah it turned out really good Uh, that that sounds very cool yeah i love that oh man well again thank you so much for coming on brad and i'm so glad to hear that you're doing well yeah thanks for having me by i really appreciate it this was a, a fun talk that was author bradley bullier thanks so much to brad for taking the time to chat 
You can find links to Brad's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now out. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 